Matthew chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 18 this morning in particular, a passage on fasting of all things, a practice that we don't regularly consider in our world. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, Larry has a handful right there. If you put your hand in the air and he'll bring you one so that you can have these words in front of us. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you're welcome to take that also. That is our gift to you this morning. So Matthew chapter 6, again, verses 16 through 18, and this is the third of three things that Jesus talks about in Matthew 6, 1 through 20 in particular. We kind of want to look at and expand our minds a little bit before we go into these three verses in verses 16 through 18 this morning, starting in verse 1, where Jesus says to his followers, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus wants his followers to practice their righteousness and he wants them to do it in secret, not in front of other people. And that seems a bit counterintuitive, but I want to propose to you something bigger this morning, maybe get to 30,000 feet a little bit and talk a little bit about this entire passage and what it means for us as the local church, not just, uh, not just these things individually, but what does it mean to actually practice these things regularly in our individual lives and the impact that that has on us as a body, as a body of believers. So we want to think about big things first, and I kind of want to make a plea to you this morning to see what Jesus is really driving at. So much of Matthew's gospel is focused on the local church and what it means to be a local church. Later on in the gospel of Matthew, he starts talking very pointedly about the church, but right now in the Sermon on the Mount, he wants to deal with the hearts of his followers for a very specific reason, because he knew if they dealt with the issues that were going on in their heart and the way that they they did life um, and the way that they understood how they were saved, how they were redeemed, how they were bought, how they were favored by God. If they had that de depth of understanding when it came to these things, uh, then when they came together as a church post-resurrection of Christ, uh, they would be unified together. So, when Matthew records Jesus saying these things in verses 16 through 18, he is building on this idea of practicing righteousness in, in secret. So again, verse 1 in chapter 6 sort of gives us our thesis through for Matthew chapter uh, one or 6 verses 1 through, we'll say, 18. So how does this fit in with the, great, great, the grand scheme of things and everything that Jesus is trying to accomplish? Um, and Jesus chooses a word, I think may, probably your Bible says, beware of practicing your righteousness. And I think Jesus chooses that word very clearly, very specifically. In our world, we've heard the, the, the words practice makes perfect. But for the Christian, it's the opposite. Perfect makes practice. And that's a really important thing for us to think about. Last week on Tuesday, on the 31st of October, that marked the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The Protestant Reformation took place when Martin Luther put a hammer to nail um, at the Wittenberg Castle door and nailed the 95 Theses there. And it set off this explosive event uh, that really reformed and renewed the church in the gospel. I won't bore you with all the details. If you want to talk about them, I've got time this afternoon, hours and hours, we can talk about it. It'll be fun. I guarantee it. 
But one of the main things in the Reformation, if you don't know anything else about the Reformation, understand that it's a, at the heart of the Reformation is the recovery of the truth of the gospel. And there are just five things that are contained that the Reformers communicated over and over and over again. You'll actually see them on the screen behind me. Um, uh, sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Fide, by faith alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. Sola Christus, by Christ alone. And Sola Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone. And those three, th- those five things, excuse me, stand at the heart of the Reformation and what they were trying to accomplish. The Reformers were pointing to a recovery of the heart of the gospel. And what these things mean are very simple. It means that the only way to know God about God's saving work is through God's revealed word. And the only way to have right standing with God comes through faith, believing in God's promises. And the only way to have salvation is to receive it as a gift and not as a wage earned. Grace saves you alone, not your work. And Jesus is the only way to the Father to have right relationship with him restored. No mediator, no mediator, but Christ is necessary uh, to restore that right relationship with God. And in all of this, God receives the glory. No one else, nothing else receives the glory in this process except God alone. And so the Reformation then, this will make sense in a minute, the Reformation was instrumental in recovering the understanding of what we just said, that perfect makes practice. That you begin from a place where God has restored you to wholeness, that's his work and his work alone, and then out of that flows the good works that prove what is necessary for us as believers. The fruit that we bear comes out of a perfection and a wholeness and a completeness that Jesus communicates to his followers in verse 48 of Matthew chapter 5, where he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The place from which that flows is perfection that we have in Christ Jesus. So you cannot practice your righteousness, like Jesus says in verse 1 of chapter 6. You cannot practice your righteousness. You cannot practice your giving, like he talks talks about in the first uh, the first three verses there in two through verses two through four you cannot practice your prayer uh, as we spent a, a whole bunch of weeks in the Lord's Prayer and you cannot practice fasting three pillars of Jewish religious life you can pr- not practice these things unless you are made whole complete perfect by the work of Jesus Christ you can't save yourself. You can't do it. That's how this translates to from 1517, from the year the year 33, all the way to 2017 in Jamestown, North Dakota. That's how it translates. You cannot save yourself. You can't do it. Jesus can, and he's extending to us the invitation. And even as we're reading about these things that Jesus requires from his followers, the extension of the invitation is clear to us. You can't save yourself, Jesus can. If you try to do better, you will fail miserably. If you're here this morning and you're trying to do good things and you think that that will get you into heaven, that that will restore right relationship with God, that that will make you a Christian, you are flawed in your thinking. There is no amount of good that you can do. There are no moral codes that you can live up to. There is no balance of good deeds and bad deeds in your life. You are a sinner in need of a savior. 
And maybe you've heard that, and maybe you've responded in faith, and to that I would say, good, great, you've received the grace of God and received it, and now are seeking to live according to all that he has commanded you. But many of us still think, and we fall into this trap where we believe that our work still merits something for us, or has some bearing on our eternity. And you live riddled in guilt because of the way you treated another person, or the way that you handled a life situation. Or you live ongoing anger because the way another person treated you in your world. And I've heard a lot. I've heard this a lot in my life, my life here on earth. I've heard I'd never do a thing like that or, or I'd never treat another person that way. And what that boils down to is a self-righteousness. Please consider that in that moment, in that moment that you claim that you can do something that only God can do in your life, you're trusting yourself and your lack of bad deeds to save you. And in that process, in that process, what makes this so important is that fifth thing, sola deo gloria, that in that, if you say that, if you say it is by my work, you rob God completely of the glory that is only due to him. God saved you out of the depth of sin and rebelliousness that you cannot fathom. And so the, the admonition out of that is clear. Don't steal his glory. Repent, turn from your sin. Repent and turn from trusting yourself and trust and focus on God's saving power, not your ability to live up to moral codes or be a good person. There is one person who loves it when you seek these things in yourself is the father of lies himself, Satan. He loves it when you rely on your good works. He loves it when you say, I am a good person and I can do good things apart from Christ. That is exactly the redirect that he wants to send you down. That's exactly the path that he wants to push you down as a person. To say, I can do good in myself and myself apart from Christ. But God loves it when you call out, like Augustus Toplady wrote in Rock of Ages, probably my favorite hymn, one of my favorite hymns. He says this, he writes this. I'm not going to sing it for you. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace, foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. So it's perfect that makes practice. You must be perfect to practice in the way that Jesus talks about in chapter 6, verse 1 of Matthew's gospel. This is found in scripture. It's by grace. It's through faith. It's in Christ and it's for God's glory alone. So let's be practical about this. These are a lot of words. Let's be practical about this. What does this mean? What does this mean for us in our daily life? You're not here this morning by mistake. That's what this means. You're not here this morning by mistake. God has directed you here for a reason. God has brought you here this morning for a reason. If you haven't trusted him, first acknowledge. Acknowledge that you are sinful and that you are in desperate need of a Savior because you cannot deal with that sin in and of yourself. That is step one. And not to reduce it to steps, but you cannot be saved without admitting that you need saving. 
Second, then acknowledge that Jesus is the only way. That Jesus is the only way that you can be saved. Not your effort, not your work. Trust that he has taken your sin, that he has dealt with it on the cross. If you do that, you will receive the spirit of Christ, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, who gives you the strength and the power to do what Jesus is commanding his followers to do, to practice their righteousness. And if you trusted Jesus, and that's where you are this morning, as I know many of you are, that's the position that you are this morning, then we need to practice this. We need to get practicing. The Christian practices righteousness, no exceptions. And again, this is practical. I believe very strongly, real talk, just about this space here, who we are as a church this morning. About Buffalo City Church, I believe very strongly that Buffalo City Church exists to make disciples who make disciples. We made that our mission statement. We made that our mission statement not because we got a vision from the Lord, but because it's clear, given to us in Scripture and the end of Matthew's Gospel. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And then he promises us that he is with us till the end of the age. That's our mission as a church, and that is the mission of every other local church on the face of planet earth. And many of you have made excuses for keeping spiritual things at arm's length. And I believe very strongly then that Buffalo City Church exists to impact Jamestown, North Dakota with the truth of the gospel and also the surrounding region. And many of us have loaded ourselves down with so many tasks and just busyness that we cannot be bothered with something like that. And I believe very strongly that Buffalo City Church exists to see churches planted in our region in rural communities just like this one to make Jesus known, to exalt Jesus together as a unified body of believers coming together to do what God has commanded us to do to make disciples. And again, the reason I believe this is not because this is given to us in some special revelation, but because Scripture is clear. This is what we see in the New Testament. This is what the New Testament church looks like. Extending out, reaching out, drilling deep and reaching wide into the world. We exist to make disciples and proclaim the truth of the gospel and to see churches grow and flourish in our region because that's the picture of the local church in the New Testament. The local church is God's way of accomplishing his mission here on earth. The local church is God's way of accomplishing his mission here on earth. Say it with me. It's on the screen, I think. Or it will be in a second. Say this with me. The local church is God's way of accomplishing his mission here on earth. That's what we believe. That's what we find in scripture. That God institutes his church through Jesus Christ in order to fulfill his mission here on this earth. So that means for us something really important. And that's what this text is about this morning. Even when we get to fasting and we talk about prayer the last few weeks and we talked about giving the weeks before. This is what this is about. The local church is God's way of accomplishing his mission here on earth. The local church is God's people gathered together for God's purposes. And we must gather and we must understand our purpose. It's not just a, a train to get upon. It's not, a, it's not a bandwagon for us to jump upon. This is the truth. It's why we exist. We have all the exact same purpose to go into the world, to make disciples, to proclaim God to a broken world, to bring light to a darkness, to proclaim life to a dead and dying world. And when we walk out of here, our 
purpose does not change. It's not to make money. It's not to give our kids nice things. It's not to be a nice person. It's to go into the world and to make disciples, plain and simple. Perfect makes practice. So how do we do that? How do we do that? That's what Jesus is communicating here. How do we do that? How do we impact our region with the gospel? How do we take who we are and see it happen in other places around us? How do we communicate the truth of who God is in to our coworkers and our friends and our neighbors? There has never been a generation on earth that has known their neighbors less than our generation. This is the reality of the world that we live in. We saturate ourselves in social media and then we forget to have face-to-face real actionable relationships with people around us. And so it begins on the personal level. It begins in the heart. We will fail to make disciples and do what God commands us to do. We will fail to impact our community. We will fail to see churches grow and flourish in our community if we don't personally devote ourselves to God's word, commit ourselves to prayer, seek to grow in our affections in the quiet moments for Jesus, and devote ourselves to the corporate worship, to being together regularly as the body of Christ. So devote yourself to these things. Devote yourself to being here. You say, like, I don't, you don't know my situation. It's so hard to get into God's word. It's so hard to spend time there. It's so hard to be here on a Sunday morning. It's so hard to get here. The greatest impact that you can make in your life is to be involved with people in here, in this room, and out there, and in the community, ready to proclaim who Jesus is in that world. Ready to care for your brothers and sisters, ready to worship God who has given you all things in Christ Jesus. And maybe you say something like, I'm too busy. The first thing you should give up, or the first thing that you should give yourself to, you should give up all other things. The first thing that you should give yourself to is developing your relationship with God. And secondarily, flowing out of that, his people. If you give yourself, if you have other things that keep you from doing that, be done with them. This is my plea to you. Get rid of those things that prevent you from being together with God's people regularly. And I think we have a tendency when those words are said is to say, you don't mean me. But yes, we mean you, I mean you. And you say, the things I'm doing aren't bad, they're good, they're good, they're impacting, they're doing this and the other thing, and that's not the point. You've been made perfect, so practice. You're in Christ, and that's where your identity is. Why are we living like our identity is elsewhere? So just like make a guarantee that I see here in Scripture. This is the reason I'm going to make the guarantee, because I see it, we see what the Bible communicates, and this is what it is. If you commit yourself to God's people, you will find peace, joy, unity like nowhere else on earth. And again, objection. We address these objections. You say, I have been a part of churches where people have hurt me, where they've walked over me, where they've been power hungry, where all they've wanted to do is to to get their own way. And the answer to that question is, yes, people are sinful. Yes, but let's strive together to practice our righteousness, to devote ourselves to God's word, to prayer, and to each other. And let's move forward. Forward movement prevents self-centered, power-seeking tendencies that we see crop up so often in the the local churches. It's like water that gets stagnant. 
It's just like a tire. You got a tire in your backyard? I don't have a tire in my backyard. But if you have a tire in your backyard and it rains, there's water that builds up in it, and that water gets stagnant, mosquitoes come and they lay their eggs in it, and then your neighbors are like, why are there so many mosquitoes? It's because you have a tire in your backyard. And it gets stagnant. That water gets stale. And it needs to be stirred. So we must focus on why we exist, why Jesus started, why Jesus brought about the church, brought about to make disciples, to impact communities with the gospel, to see the ends of the earth reached with the local church. And the reason, myself included, that we've been hurt and harmed in past church experiences is because those waters are so infrequently stirred. Because we don't seek to see those waters stirred in our own hearts and others aren't either. It's because that expression of the local church has forgotten their first love. Like Jesus says to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. He tells them, you have forgotten your first love and you've grown stale. And when that happens, the church substitutes power and pride People in the pews substitute power and pride for the humility and the sacrifice that Jesus demands. Humility and sacrifice seen in the life of Jesus, which we are now called to live out. So that's what it means to stir the waters. If that doesn't make sense, it'll make sense in a minute. Prevent the waters from becoming stale and stagnant. Prevent them from becoming a cesspool by giving yourself to God, giving yourself to God's word, to prayer, to the local church, because by doing so, you're practicing out of your perfection, the perfection that God gave you in Christ Jesus. And the impact will be huge. I'm, I, I, the impact will be huge if each of us goes home today and dedicates ourselves to these things. The impact will be huge. If this morning, which is this morning was the headwaters for this glorious movement of the gospel in Jamestown and the surrounding region. What if we came to corporate worship expecting something? What if we came here ready for something to happen that was bigger than just us in this room? Would we be ready for it? Would we be prepared for it? Would we be, would be, would we be ready to see God's hand at work amongst us? We must be practicing because we've been made perfect and to give ourselves to these things means that this movement of the gospel will go forward. The, and, and what Jesus gives to us here in verses 1 through 18 in Matthew chapter 6 seems so counterintuitive though. Because when we talk about being a church that impacts our community and talk about a church that wants to see churches planted in our region and talk about living a life that is proclaiming the truth of God's word, we think about visibility. We think about being out in the world and saying things and doing things and making things happen and a bunch of programs and throwing our hands in the air and doing crazy things. And then people are like, oh, what's going on over there? And then they come check it out. But what Jesus says is completely different in each of these three instances, in giving and in prayer and in fasting. Fasting is something that we don't talk about a lot in our culture. So why does Jesus bring it up? We'll talk about that in a minute. 
Let's read, though, the text. Let's read verses 16 through 18, and we'll see right at the front end, we'll see right at the front end why it's so important for the life of the local church and the impact that it has on the community around it. Verse 16 in Matthew chapter 6, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So instead of going out and practicing our righteousness in front of everybody else in order to see how great we are as a local church, Jesus tells his followers to do it in private. To do it in secret. Do this in secret. The reason why he tells his followers to do this is because of number five, sola deo gloria. Because whatever happens, however God chooses to grow his church, the way that he does it, he is the one who will get the glory for it, not us. So we practice our righteousness in a quiet place. So that's kind of the first point here. Practicing righteousness should be hidden, just like prayer and giving. Fasting, again, is a pillar of Jewish religious life. It was something that Jews were expected to be doing regularly. And now the religious leadership and the hypocrites had taken fasting and they turned it into a twice a week activity. They turned it into something that was twice a week. So on Monday and on Thursday, they'd get their faces all disheveled and they'd get and they'd, they'd, they, would, they would fast and they would not eat or drink. And then just like loud prayers in public and like alerting everyone when they gave to the needy, these hypocrites would fast and they would just let their personal hygiene go. They'd disfigure their faces to say, hey, everybody, I'm fasting. Everybody would know, look at, look at those religious people. Look at, they're really doing a great job. And Jesus said, he says again, Just like giving in prayer, he assumes that his followers are fasting. He says, when you fast, verse 16, the first three words, and when, four words, sorry, and when you fast. So what does that mean for us? I think it means that every disciple, a discipline that we engage in should be be fasting. We should integrate this into our lives. We'll come back to that because we're just going to give some practical understanding of fasting and what it looks like in, in our world. But he discusses the practice of the hypocrites then in their intent, right? That's where he turns. Like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their face and their fasting may be seen by others. They do it out in the open so that everyone will see them. Their intent is that everyone have, everyone look at their righteousness. But then Jesus tells how his followers should conduct themselves when they fast. What does he say? But when you fast, verse 17, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Anoint your head and wash your face. Anointing your head and washing your face is what you would have done when the fast was over. When the fast was done, you would have put oil on your head and you would have have washed up and gotten clean. And in some instances, anointing your head and, and, and washing your face were because you were going to a party or to a feast. It's almost like the direct opposite. You're communicating almost the direct opposite thing. You're saying, I'm going to a party or a feast. Jesus wants his followers to give no indication that they're fasting, but actually that they're headed to a celebration so that their righteous deeds would be done in secret. 
So when you discipline yourself to fast, don't make a show. Why? This is why Jesus wants to communicate. Why? Because if you make it a show, you're telling the world that your reward is here on earth. When you make it a show, you're telling the world that your reward is here on earth. That reward is people saying, wow, look at how righteous that guy is. What a great person. He's always fasting. She's always praying. They're always giving. Amazing. Now, it needs to be noticed that when Jesus talks about practicing righteousness in secret, he doesn't say, make sure no one knows. He just says, don't go out of your way. Don't blow the trumpet. Don't stand on the street corner. Don't make your face a mess. He says, where the intention of the heart is what he's looking at. This is the motivation for practicing righteousness. If the intent is to get people's attention and to appear to be righteous, then you're going against what Jesus is teaching. And that will be your reward. You will get what you want. But Jesus knows that there is something greater, a better reward. And that reward is, is God himself. We're going to see that even as we come into the next passage next week in verses 19 and 20 and 21. Verse 21, when Jesus turns his attention back to treasure, and he says in verse 21, for the way your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's assuming that our greatest treasure is God himself. And he wants us to give, he wants us to give ourselves to this practice and do it in secret in order that he might give us all of himself. An infinitely good God, powerful, our creator, our sustainer, our Father and our King, He wants to give us all of Him. And when you practice your righteousness in secret, God sees and He will reward you with more of Himself. And so here's how this connects back. Again, we were talking about this at the outset. This is how it connects back to the mission of the local church and why we as a church, as a body, as a small group of believers in Jamestown in North Dakota exist. The local church is God's way of accomplishing his mission here on earth. And we're the local church. And our mission is to make disciples take the gospel to our community and see the church grow and flourish in our region. That starts by every single one of us, no exceptions, that starts with every single one of us practicing our righteousness in secret, practicing the things that God commands here through Jesus, giving and prayer and fasting, but then also things like uh, growing our affections for God and, and understanding who he is in his word. And that's, again, totally counterintuitive. It's completely counterintuitive. We might be tempted to think if we're going to accomplish our mission, we should go out and tell everyone just how great this space is. I don't know, maybe you don't think that. It's like, if you go out and tell the world how great this is here, hey, everybody come in here. But we shouldn't do that. Jesus says we shouldn't do that. We should devote that energy to practicing our righteousness in secret and to telling others how great Jesus is so that they too can practice out of their perfection. And we're all guilty of wanting others to think highly of us, both as individuals and as a church. Remember that I am. And we really think about situations in our lives. We think about a time maybe where we were slandered as a person. Or maybe when someone said something about you that was false. Or think about a time where you were 
thought highly of someone and you wanted them to think highly of you in return. Think of a time where you felt like people saw how much you liked helping other people and you wanted them to do that also. What was your reaction in that? Was it to justify yourself to a slanderer or to put on a show for that person you admire or to point to all of your good deeds and all your merit and all your help that you offer to other people? We need to be very careful here. We need to be very careful here that our righteousness is practiced in secret and that we're all practicing together. If we as a church draw from deep wells, our impact will reach wide. A deep well is God himself, not temporary congratulations, applause, approval of men. So we give and we pray and we fast like Jesus commands us to do. and We do it all in secret. So this idea then in verses 16 through 18 of fasting, if Jesus says to his followers, and when you fast and assumes that they are fasting, then for us, what does that look like in the 21st century? I think this is probably one of the most misunderstood disciplines in the church. I think it's one of the most misunderstood disciplines in the church. Um, quickly then, I'm just going to give you five thoughts contained here. What I see is a biblical understanding of what fasting is and how Jesus expects us as his followers to engage this, this practice. Um, first, you'll see them on the screen behind me. First, fasting is the discipline of not eating. In some instances, not drinking. Fasting is the discipline of not eating and sometimes drinking. The biblical idea of fasting does not extend to Facebook. It does not extend to just chocolate or, or whatever it is that you're, uh, whatever it is that you're we're doing. That's just abstinence. You're just abstaining from something. That is not the biblical idea of fasting is it always has to do with food. Um, if you are enslaved to something, if you find that you cannot live without something, the call is to put that to death and not just to set it aside. We need to be killing whatever is enslaving us. So, for example, if you're addicted to technology, you can't put your phone down. You need to find a way to put that to death. Fasting from it is not the answer. We must kill what is in, we are enslaved to. So first then, the fasting is a discipline of not eating, and sometimes instances, some instances not drinking. Secondly then, fasting is not a way to strong-arm God. Somehow, somewhere, people decided that fasting was a way to get what we wanted. That is not the case. That is never the case in, in a, biblical, a biblical fast. Um, the intent of fasting is never to strong arm and to pressure God into giving us what we want. So maybe you've been part of a church or part of a situation or organization that is Christian and they say, we have this initiative, we want to build a campaign, we want to do this or that or the other thing. And so they call you to, to pray and to fast um, in order to get something out of it. Fasting is never about getting something. I'll give you a quote. Scott McKnight writes this, that Christians have extended fasting into a manipulative device by which the fasting person believes he or she can pressure God into doing what she wants, he or she wants. This is not what fasting is about. Third then, fasting is a personal discipline meant to be done in secret. We talked about this. Let me just give you this quote from Martin Luther. He says this, that 
Fasting in Jesus' day had become a device for having people look at them, talk about them, admire them, and say in astonishment, oh, what wonderful saints these people are. They do not live like the other ordinary people. They go around in gray coats with their heads hanging down and a sour, pale expression on their face. If such people do not get into heaven, what will become of the rest of us? So we've talked about this. We've talked about the secret element of this. So let's move on. Fourth then. Biblical fasting is a response to, this is how we see it, biblical response to a terrible incident in the world or to grievous sin or pleading to God for spiritual movement in our hearts or the hearts of another. So incidents like Las Vegas shooting or the hurricanes that we saw take place earlier in our earlier this year, just a few months ago, these would call for a response of fasting. And we should seek God in the midst of terrible tragedy on earth and pray for him to reduce, pray for him to reduce the effects of sin on our world and restore all things to the way that he originally intended. Or when we personally sin dramatically or are sinned against dramatically, we should consider fasting in response. David Mathis, he writes this, Christian fasting turns its attention to Jesus or some great cause of this world. Christian fasting seeks to take the pains of hunger and transpose them into a key of some eternal anthem. Whether it's fighting against some sin or pleading for someone's salvation or for the cause of the unborn or the longing or longing for a greater taste of Jesus. I'm going to say this also. I didn't necessarily plan to say this, but if you're Considering the, the, the discipline of fasting, Jesus doesn't give us a frequency. It was practiced in Jesus' day with frequency, but it, on Mondays and Thursdays by the Jewish leadership, but Jesus did not give us a frequency. And the Bible does not give us a frequency. It gives us a, a picture of response. So if you or someone that you're close with struggles maybe with an eating disorder, this is a discipline probably to set aside for a time. This is not something to engage. We want to care for and allow people to be cared for in the context of the local church. And if you know somebody who is struggling in that realm, fasting or suggesting that they fast in response to to something might be a tough or the, the wrong response for that individual. We want to care for people and find uh, who find themselves struggling in that area. So four things I wanted to say that fifth. Fasting should heighten our desire and our affections for God. I think that this is the key, and I think that this is the aim of biblical fasting. Fasting should heighten our uh, desire and affections for God. Again, the Old Testament is fraught with with, uh, descriptions of God as our portion. Psalm 34, again, we quoted that last week or maybe two weeks ago. We say, taste and see that the Lord is good Fasting is an important practice not to get something, but to proclaim in our hearts that God is all that we need. That's what this is about. And that need is greater than ever, um, even eating and drinking. 
So those are five thoughts about integrating fasting into our, into our daily life as a, as a discipline in the 21st century. Um, this is something, again, that there are a lot of questions about. Um, if there's something that's said and you want to, to, to discuss this more, um, community group is a great place to do that. We can talk about it more in the context of community. Um, and I'm always free also to talk through some of these ideas here. So just in conclusion this morning, obviously a lot of this text, and again, focusing largely on verses 1 through 18 in Matthew 6, um, um, this is important, right? That God would use our righteousness practiced in secret to grow the body to live into mission that God has given us. God will use our righteousness practiced in secret, our giving, our prayer, and our fasting, And our devotion to him, God will use our righteousness, practice in secret to grow the body, to live into the mission that God has given to us. So we need to stir the waters together. We don't come together, we stir the waters here a little bit, but you need to personally be stirring the waters in your own heart, in your own time, in a quiet place, in the secrecy of your your own home or wherever you find yourself, you must be stirring the waters, not practicing your righteousness in secret. That's what the foundation of the, the local church is. A growing desire and affection for who God is in Jesus Christ for us. And if we stir these waters regularly, friends, if we do this in our personal life, that will translate to dynamic growth here. Not just numerically, but in our hearts. It'll translate into us becoming a church that impacts our region, that impacts everyone around us. We're going to stir the waters, not let them become stagnant. Devote ourselves to knowing God. Devote ourselves to corporate worship and the people of God. And again, it begins in the quietness of our own heart, a quietness where God will reward us with himself. So we need to, what we need to do actionably is set aside our busyness, Set aside a frenetic pace of life. All things that make us feel anxious. All the things that rob us of our margin to rest in Jesus. And again, there are a lot of good things we can do. We can fill up our day with a lot of really good things. But there is only one thing that is best. There is only one thing that is best. It is loving God through growing in our knowledge of him through his word through prayer, through practicing our righteousness in secret. And this will, this will spill over into love for the people of God, being together in corporate worship, engaging our community and our region with the truth of who Jesus Christ is. We will be generous people. This will spill over into a togetherness that is constant. Like we read this morning from Acts, in Acts 2, 42 through 47. Let me just conclude by reading that for us again. This is what the early church looked like right after receiving the Spirit of Christ. This is how it looked. Again, look at how many times they devoted themselves to things and these practices. Acts 2, 42 through 47 says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the, pra- and, the, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved, devoting themselves to the word of God, devoting themselves to fellowship, devoting themselves to being together, devoting themselves to prayer, having an awe for Jesus of seeing signs and wonders, seeing people transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, believing together, having things in common, not being tied down to possessions here on earth, not being tied down to what they had here, but understanding that their greatest good was found in Jesus. They gathered together, they ate together, They received food, they had glad and generous hearts, and they praised God. They made an impact in their community. Those who the Lord added to their number, day by day, to those who were being saved. Let's pray.